We are in Philippians 2. We are today looking at verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Uh, last week, we looked at verses 5 through 8. So if you're not already there in your Bibles, uh, please turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, there is there are blue Bibles uh, underneath seats around you, no doubt. And they're there for you to use so that you can follow along in the Word of God. In that blue Bible, you can turn to page 980. That'll bring you to our section. You ready? Let me do just a little bit of review, just to kind of always, uh, bless you, keep the context together, okay, so that we, we don't get lost in the letter, but kind of we know where we are, we know what, what Paul's been say, saying. There is an overarching imperative, a command that Paul gives to the church in Philippi, and certainly we can take to ourselves as a church as well. To let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's in verse 27 of chapter 1. And I, when we covered that section, I said that that imperative really, what, what flows out of that imperative is everything that Paul says following that all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. So where we are right now is included under that umbrella of, this is what it is to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And and as Paul expands upon that and explains that. And worthy, I explained to you, it's a, it's a proper response, appropriate response to the gospel. To all that we learn about the gospel, how, how do we now live in light of that? We are to live worthy, rightly, correctly. We are to offer ourselves up to this one who gave himself up for us. We are to live for him. We are to boldly proclaim him and so on and so forth. And so he says to this church, a good church, a church he planted 10 years prior or started 10 years prior, a church that has been faithful not only to proclaiming the gospel and living for Christ, but also in partnering with Paul, the apostle of Christ, in his efforts to continue to advance the gospel in one city to the next city. They're a good church, but they, they are facing some troubles presently. They are facing some opposition. I would imagine they've had opposition the whole time. Maybe this, the opposition has increased, uh, local opposition. And so Paul says, in the face of opposition, this is what it is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. But take a resolute stand together as one body, arm in arm, for Christ. Don't be frightened, but stand firm in Christ, together, and for Christ, together. And be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. That is what it is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, for he suffered. He suffered for you. Paul goes on to exhort the church toward unity. This is critical. If they are not truly united, or if their unity is to one degree, 
diminished or disturbed, then how will they ever stand together against the opposition of the world? They won't. If they're tearing themselves apart internally, then how will they be able to stand resolute against those who want to tear them apart from the outside? And so Paul goes on to exhort this this good church, this church he loves. He exhorts them toward unity. And, and this is key, humility. Humility. Right? Because without humility, unity can't survive. In fact, to the degree that humility is not present, unity will not be present. And so he says in chapter 2, 3 through 4, again, all of it coming under that overarching imperative, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says to this church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. No doubt, real issues there for that local body, and for that matter, you can find those issues in any local body, local church. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Let the needs and interests of your brothers and sisters surpass yours. Put them in the center of your concern. Let the health and and welfare of the church community, your church community, become the focus of your attention instead of your egocentric priorities. That's really really what Paul's calling them to. Put them at the top of your list. You need to help one another. You need to be looking out for one another. You need to be encouraging one another in the things of God, shoring one another up, speaking to their weaknesses, encouraging them in their strengths, so that you can together, more better, stand for Christ and witness to the power of the gospel through your lives, through your transformed lives. But if you're if that's not your concern and, and you have other personal agendas other than advancing Christ, then, well, that's not unity and that certainly isn't humility. And a church's witness for Christ will then be diminished and eventually destroyed if left unchecked. And humility, as I as we went through that section, true humility, it, it, it's not self-focused. It's not self-focused. There's a false humility that some think is humility where really it's an attempt to draw more attention to yourself. Look how humble I am. That's not true humility. True humility is not focused on self at all. In fact, it's freed from self so that it might put its concern toward others and care for others and lift them up. It's not obsessed with or preoccupied with self, true humility. And so along those lines, 
Paul desiring for the church in Philippi to be an even greater witness for Christ and, and to not let some of these challenges they're facing bring them down. He calls upon them to be united and to walk in humility. And then he says, listen, adopt the attitude of Jesus Christ. Have this attitude which was also in him, your Savior, the head of the church, the one we worship, the one we're proclaiming, the one we're living for. Have this attitude that was in him. That's in 2.5. And then Paul describes the mind-blowing actions of Christ, which demonstrate his true humility. The one and only divine Son of God, sharing God's glory, clothed, and clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. And, and, and these are words I say, but I, I, I can't, exactly picture all that that is. I can only imagine, and even that won't reach the limits of and, and the glories that Christ is and was the pre-incarnate Christ before coming to earth. But he, this one, the sharing God's glory one, willingly chose to enter and travel down a path with a sign above it that read, this way, to utter humiliation. Who would do that? The selfless, self-sacrificing, self-giving, truly Humble Son of God did just that. And what did that look like exactly? Well, we looked at this last week. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Not by, as I explained last week, not by subtraction. He didn't become less God. He didn't pour out his divinity. He didn't give up his divine attributes. It wasn't by subtraction. He didn't become less than he was. But rather, he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation by addition, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. That's no promotion, beloved. That's no promotion. That's a step down. A huge, a huge step down. Uh, and I have no, I, I have tried to think of ways to illustrate this, and honestly, there's just really no way to really get at it. But I, if I were to even try to, to think of such things, to think of what he did and illustrate it in some other form, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't measure up. I'm going to tell you that right now. But I was just thinking about 
me as a human being and ants. Ants. Pathetic, tiny, I crush you with my finger. Ants. Down there, you know, doing their thing. And if you would imagine me saying, I, for the sake of those ants and the glory, I'm going to assume I created the ants, okay? I didn't, but for the glory of my created ants, for, for the glory of me and the, and, the, and the good of my created ants, for the glory of the Godhead, I, I, human, am going to take on the likeness of an ant. I mean, it just, are you kidding me? No. Nope. That's, that's why the gospel is, my, it is mind-boggling. And now I'm a, just a little pathetic, really pathetic ant. And subject to all the weaknesses of an ant. And I know someone will say, you know ants are the strongest per, based on their weight, animal on the planet. Okay, you know, like, okay, all right, I'm not trying. It's not a perfect illustration, I get it. But compared to me, they're nothing. They're nothing. And I, I clothe myself in ant. I take on that additional nature. I make myself nothing. I'm just a little worker ant for the sake of those ants and for the glory of God. Ay, ay, ay. Give up all the glories that humanity is. It, and it is. There's great splendor and, and wonderful things that I get to enjoy as a human being that those little ants, they don't know. It's just, it is mind-boggling, beloved. He emptied himself. He took on flesh. And again, it's hard, for, it's hard, I think, for us to grasp just how far of a distance he had to travel down the path of humiliation, really. How long is that road? It's pretty long. And then not only that, but as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I read this to you last time. Having fully identified himself with humanity, one writer says, in his incarnation fully taking on human likeness so that he could, as we know, live the perfect life and die, live the perfect life as a man and die for humanity. Having fully identified himself with humanity in his incarnation, Christ then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the utmost limit, even to death, and that the most shameful of all. the utterly vile death of the cross. This is, this is humility at its perfection. And Paul says, church, adopt the attitude of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call upon us to do what Christ did. Not possible. Impossible. But he calls on us to adopt the attitude that was the foundation of Christ's actions. In humility, the divine Son of God obediently, willingly stepped away from the indescribable, because that's what they are, indescribable glories of heaven, and he made his way to the cross where he was humiliated and murdered by those he created. 
I'm an ant, and then eventually all the ants jump on me and tear me apart. You know what I mean? Are you kidding? Someone might say, look what his humility got him. Yeah, look. Look what his humility got him. The great salvation of sinners. Without this, as my brother Thomas said earlier, we'd be out of luck. He didn't say that, but that's what he was saying. Without hope. Without rescue. The only thing we would have to look forward to, as he said, was to return to the dust and then face the final judgment where we would be condemned. Rightly so. Where we would be stamped guilty before God. And we would pay in a place called hell, separated from God forever. Look what his humility got us. The great salvation of sinners to the utter glory of God. This one, the Son of God, he emptied himself, he humbled himself. And now we pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, before we dive in, a quick note. When we come to passages like this, it's important, it's important for us to attempt to keep the doctrine of the Trinity in our mind. And that being uh, the Bible's teaching that there is only one God, yes, but that the one God exists as three distinct and unique persons. So when we speak of the triune God, we speak of him, of the three persons in this way. We say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yes? So in verse 9, God, therefore God, is God the Father there? Okay? So they don't, when you're reading the scriptures, they don't always fully express who it is that they're talking about within the triune Godhead. But that's the God the Father, as we see, as he will note in verse 11, where he actually says, God the Father. So, in trying to keep that in mind so that we don't get confused, it is God the Father who highly exalted him, who's him, that Jesus, but that would be, for clarity, the Son of God, the Son of God, who we now know is Jesus, but before he was Jesus, he was the, and 
forever the Son of God. So, the Father highly exalted Him, Him being the Son of God, who through His incarnation became man and was given the name Jesus by His earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. Okay? Just to keep it, make sure we don't get mixed up. One, uh, speaking about the Trinity, one author said, each person of the Trinity had a unique role in creation and in the salvation of mankind. And we just need to, we need to do our best because it is difficult for us, for sure. Because even trying to embrace the Trinity, we know it's true because that's what the Scriptures teach, but trying to really understand it in all of its details, yeah, we just can't get there fully. But we need to do our best to make sure that we keep the distinctions that should be there. So, he says, each person of the Trinity has a unique role in creation and in salvation of mankind. So, for instance, God the Father didn't die on the cross. God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Son did. But even sometimes when we're praying, we don't keep these distinctions very clear, and we end up basically thanking God the Father for dying on the cross. But he didn't. The Son did, okay? And I know, you know, how does that work? Okay, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to explain that. I'm just telling you I want to keep to those distinctions. They're important so we see how each plays a part in the redemption of humanity. Okay? And even in creation for that matter. He goes on to say the Holy Spirit is unique and is not the Father or the Son. He, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's John 15, 26. The Father and Son are also unique. When Jesus prayed to the Father, he was not praying to himself. Okay, Each is God, but each is a separate person. Person. This author says, using the word person is one of the only ways our language has to describe this concept. All three persons of the Trinity comprise the one perfectly unified God. They share the same nature and essence. So the Son of God is God, very God, all the way through. Not less God, not more God. He's God. God the Father is God, all the way God. You get it? The Holy Spirit, God. They share the same essence and nature. And they are all the same God, but each individual person of the Trinity is distinct and unique. And so we have these descriptions of this activity taking place between the triune Godhead. And we just need to make sure we are thinking of the right person doing the right thing and not get it confused. And not think when Jesus isn't referred to as God that he's still not God. He is still God. Okay? But there is activity taking place because it'll say God did this to Jesus. Oh, I guess Jesus isn't God. No, he's the son of God. He always is. But they don't always list those realities when they're explaining the scriptures or when they're writing, when the scriptures are being written. But you have to keep them, keep aware of them in your mind. All right, I hope I didn't confuse you. So here we go, Philippians 2.9. Therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him, the one who emptied himself and humbled himself, dying a death on the cross, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that whole Trinity thing I just did, it's going to come back into play here in a moment, okay? So that's why I did it as we move through this section. Okay, so here we have God the Father's response to the self-humiliation. He wasn't humbled. He humbled himself. 
He chose to do this. He volunteered. We have the father's response to the self-humiliation that was described in verses 6 through 8 of his beloved and humble son, the son of God. And that self-humiliation, as I pointed out already, reached its climax on his death on the cross. So the son of God, for the redemption of sinners and the glory of the Godhead, most willingly and selflessly emptied and humbled himself And in response, his father highly exalted him. This is a response, really, of vindication and approval. Now, this verb here that's translated highly exalted, it's a compound of the ordinary verb for exalt, hyper-exalt, if you will. It's found only here in the New Testament. Paul puts words together. He, likes to, he does it a lot to emphasize or to create a new word in a sense. Bible scholars say it could be translated super exalted. I mean, it could be super exalted. But its meaning, I would just say this, its meaning is that the father has exalted his son, okay? His father has exalted his humiliated son, to the highest possible degree. There is no, there is no higher exaltation. You, there is nothing higher. So keep that in mind as we begin to look at the, as we keep moving through the passage. The father has exalted his son to the highest possible degree, which places him in a place of his own, if you will. Now look back at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All right, a couple of notes from Bible commentators, and I think you'll understand what I believe is being communicated there in verse 9. I agree with these statements. Okay, this is what one writer says. The statement that God highly exalted Christ is the parallel assertion that he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Those words, he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, do not describe a further or separate stage in the exaltation, much less an advance beyond it, because that would be impossible. Rather, they are parallel to the first clause, which is, he's highly exalted him amplifying its meaning and indicating its nature. All right, now if you didn't understand that, this one might be a little more clear. And if you did understand it, fantastic, that's great. But this, he says it a different way. Although expressed as a twofold action, most, like, most likely Paul intends the two verbs in the sentence which are exalted and bestowed to point to a single reality, that God highly exalted Christ by bestowing on him the name that is above every name. Does that make sense? In other words, there's not two different things going on that Paul is speaking of in verse 9. He exalted him, what's that about? 
And he gave him the name that's above every name. What's that about? And they're entirely separate things. No, his exaltation of him was that he gave him, he bestowed upon him, he graciously gave to his son the name that is above every other name. And that is how this one was exalted to the highest possible degree. He was at the lowest Through the bestowing of this name, he is at the highest. You with me? Okay. So what is the name? Don't answer, please, don't answer. Normally I do like answers, but just hold on, hold on. This is like, this is build-up, this is suspense, so I don't want anybody to blow it. What is the name that is above every name? All right, now listen. Some think Paul... To, they think Paul is speaking of Christ's earthly name. Of the Son of God's earthly name. What name is that? Jesus. Because Christ is actually a title. So we've talked about that before. I know it just always says, you'll often find it, Jesus Christ. But he is Jesus the Christ. Um, they didn't go around, you know, saying... Jesus Christ, get over here and clean up your room. They didn't do that. They would have said Jesus or, you know, an equivalent in their language. They just, that, you know, it wasn't his, they didn't, it wasn't his last name, okay? So, but he did have an earthly name, and, and his earthly name is significant, but it wasn't uncommon. In other words, other people growing up in his day had his name. Now, it just so happens that his name, Yeshua, means God saves, or God is salvation. Other people had that name. Okay? But that's the meaning of the name. Now, certainly, he fulfilled the meaning of that name in a way that no one ever will or ever could. He was the salvation of God. He was God saving sinners. Okay, so it was the right and it was the appropriate name. And you know that mom and dad didn't go through a book and pick the name, right? They didn't do that. They were told what to name him by an angel. So it's a, it's a name intentionally given to him. And as I said, some people think it's that name. I don't. I take the position that many Bible commentators believe or take that the name Paul is speaking of, and you have to remember, we are told it is a name that is above every name. It just is. In other words, it wasn't made to be. It wasn't as if, because then you'd have to say, well, did he, did he make Jesus' name above every other name? I mean, it's a common name. It's a name that is above every name. So what is that name? Well, it's, I don't believe it's Jesus. I would take the position that other commentators take, that it is Lord. Lord. Now listen, Lord was used, basically, it came to be used as the personal name for the God of Israel. Lord is the designation, 
that you will find in the Septuagint, or Greek translation of the Old Testament, that represented the personal name of God in the Old Testament, which we might say is, or pronounce as Yahweh. Yahweh. So you see this, for instance, in Isaiah 42.8, where God says, the God of Israel says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Okay? So, you think about the Old Testament, you think about uh, one thing that's been made very clear in the Old Testament, that there is only one God, right? There is only one God. Um, his name, as far as they knew, his name was Yahweh, or came to be Lord, Lord. Their interactions uh, with this one God, I would say, is their interactions with God the Father, God the Father, who promised to send them, the nation of Israel, a Messiah, the Christ, who, as he continued to reveal who that would be, we learn, would be the Son of God, who would be called on earth Jesus, God saves, or God is salvation. You with me so far? Okay. Again, as doing our best to keep these distinctions. The other thing that God made abundantly clear, the Father, in the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel, God, God of Israel, was that there were no other gods like him. And in fact, they were no gods at all. He was almighty. He was all-powerful. He was the creator of heaven and earth. Everyone on the whole planet were to bow and submit to him. And what's his name? My name is Lord. Lord. Okay? Which is used for Yahweh. That the name is not Jesus but Lord can be supported, I'll show you now where we're getting this from, it can be supported by verses 10 and 11. So look back now at the text. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, stick with me. If we understand the name that is above every name to be not Jesus, but Lord, or the name of God, then at the name of Jesus in verse 10 would not be understood to mean the name Jesus. In other words, he's not saying, so that the name Jesus, italics, but rather 
the name which belongs to Jesus. And the grammar supports that. The name which belongs to Jesus. And why does it belong to Jesus? Because God the Father bestowed it on him. It was his exaltation to the highest place. So, you would read it like this, okay? So that at the name which belongs to Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Now, what about those phrases? Every knee should bow and every tongue confess. What about those? Do they show up anywhere else? They do. Paul uses them a few other places in reference to Jesus. But they're actually being drawn because one of the times that Paul uses them, he says, it is written, which is a reference to the Old Testament. They're actually being drawn from Isaiah. Those phrases. So let's look at it. 45, 23. Now who's speaking here? The God of Israel. And I would, again, trying to keep the distinctions, God the Father is speaking. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return or will not be revoked. Another way to translate it. And he says this, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Quick note, quick note. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says this, when they translate it over to the Greek, it says, every tongue shall confess. And that's where Paul is pulling this citation. One Bible commentator calls our attention to the context of the verse as well. So let's look at it a little bit fuller. In the NIV, just because I thought it was a little more easy to read in this case, let's start in verse 22. Again, the God of Israel speaking, Turn to me and be saved! All you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear or confess. They will say of me, here we go, in the Lord, there's his name, alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. So then the commentator says this, Here the uniqueness of the God of Israel is proclaimed and his universal triumph is hailed. The Lord, who has already declared that he will not share his name or his glory with another, Isaiah 42, 8, swears solemnly by his own life that every knee will bow before me. By me, every tongue will swear. Paul reiterates this language, but now it is in honor of the name of Jesus or the name that belongs to him. 
that everyone kneels. Another writer says this, Most believe that the bestowing on him of the name Lord as the equivalent of Yahweh, the name of God, is how Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. What favors it the most is the clear intertextuality that is in process here. The twofold result clause that makes up our verses 10 and 11 in Philippians is a direct borrowing of language from Isaiah 45:23, where Yahweh, the Lord, says that before me, the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue will swear or confess. That in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. This emphasis on Yahweh, the Lord, as the one unto whom all shall give homage, seems to certify that what Paul has in mind is none other than the name Yahweh itself, but in its Greek form of the Lord, which has now been given to Jesus. We don't have time to look at this passage in its context, but it fits with Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says, this one you murdered, God has exalted. Again, if you read that, you're like, oh, who exalted him? The Father. The Father exalted the Son. But then he says, and he's put him at his right hand of a place of authority until all of his enemies are made his footstool, which God is working out in real history, and that will happen. And then he writes in Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, the one you killed, God has made him Lord. And their response, they freaked out. They freaked out. What should we do? And so he called upon them to repent and be saved. And 3,000 were added to the church. This week, while driving on the freeway, I saw on the back of a big rug, big rig truck, I've seen it several times, but it kind of hit me more because I was in this passage. It says, his name is not the man upstairs, which is as redneck as it gets. Just saying. But I've heard him refer, I've heard God, let's just say, refer to that way. But he says, his name is not the man upstairs. It's even in country songs. Do not get your theology from country songs, beloved. It would be a huge mistake. His name is not the man upstairs. His name is Jesus, and they have it all in caps. And um, I was just thinking about that. I, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that on the back. I understand what the, I think I understand what they're going for, right? Just a, a level of, yeah, he's not just some dude that's up there. You know, his name is Jesus. But that's not even, that's not exactly right. Uh, and Jesus is not, we don't have a God who, again, it, it, there's no distinctions there. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. Who are you talking about exactly? Uh, 
We don't believe in modalism. We don't believe that, you know, there's one person acting as these other, you know, he puts on the Father hat, he puts on the Jesus hat, he puts on the Holy Spirit hat. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's not biblical. There's three distinct persons, but even more so, this is what I thought. His name is Jesus. Yeah. If, if, what, if you're thinking the Son of God and you just want to draw attention to, he's not just the man upstairs, his name is Jesus. Um, his name is Lord Jesus. I think, I think that would be a, a better way to say it and draw your attention to these, to these things that you should be drawn to. His name is Lord Jesus. By the bestowing of his Father, his name is Lord Jesus. There is no greater name. It is the very name of God, the Almighty, the All-Powerful One, the One to whom everyone will answer. That is His name. Um, back to verse 10, Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus, or at the name that belongs to Jesus, and then he brings in this phrasing, every knee should bow, as found in Isaiah. And then he adds, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Well, two things. The bowing of the knee, okay? Do you understand that? Does that need to be explained to you? So it's not a, it's not a, it's not a posture for prayer, although it could be, but that's not what we're talking about. Rather, it's a, it's a common idiom for homage or a special honor or respect shown publicly and a way of showing submission. That, that's the idea. You bow to the one who is worthy of public praise. You bow to the one you are submitting to, who is over you. Not a curtsy, a bow. Okay? That's the idea. Then he says, and every knee will bow. And just so you understand, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, there's discussion about who that is and everything. And under the earth, it's pro it probably is just a reference to the dead. I mean, he's basically covered everywhere. Above, in the heavens, in the heavenly realm, on the earth, present. Yeah? And below the earth. Could just be a reference to the dead. It could be a reference as well to the spirits maybe demons locked up someplace under the earth. But it could just be simply a reference to the dead. Here's what I would say, pretty simple. There is not a created being anywhere, angelic or human, who will not bow their knee to Lord Jesus. That's what he's saying. So, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm hearing this, I'm in Philippi, Maybe struggling a little bit. Just constant attack from those who are at present not bowing their knee to him. Those opponents of the gospel in Philippi. Those who are still trapped in their sin and slave to their sin. And living according to their sin and their rebellion. Fighting against the Lord and the Lord's people. The church. So those opponents of the gospel in Philippi, 
that were causing such suffering to the church, guess what? They too will bow. They too will bow. The rebellion, the resistance, all the suffering for the sake of Christ, it will not go on indefinitely. It will one day come to an end for no one will fail to bow to him. I don't know. That is a, as one living for the Lord and facing opposition like that, it, I'm fighting on the right team. I'm fighting for the right cause. And I have a hope that my fight won't go on forever because the Lord will put an end to it all. And then of feeling all of that tension and pressure, I will only have around me those who are gladly bowing their knee to him in the eternal kingdom of God. He goes on to say in 2.11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. Every tongue is just a way of saying everyone or all will acknowledge or openly declare that Jesus is indeed Lord. That he alone has the right to rule. He alone. Because it has bestowed, been bestowed upon him by God the Father. One writer says, at the last, every power and might will have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, recognize him, and do homage. Now, uh, just to be clear, as one author points out, Paul is not implying here that this is universal salvation. Right? Because we know this is not true now. Does every tongue confess? Does every knee bow before him who has been exalted to the highest by the bestowal of the name of God? Lord, do they? No. So, but at one point they will. Yes, they will. But this doesn't mean that all will be saved. But rather it means that every personal being will ultimately confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with resentment and despair. One writer says this, no evidence states that such acknowledgement will bring salvation. We know that's not the case. Not all will be saved. Not all will joyfully confess. They will confess. Not all will willingly bow. They will bow. He goes on to say, that must be cared for in the present before Jesus conquers his enemies. The church bears witness to Jesus' lordship by confessing to the world, Jesus Christ is Lord, and offering salvation to those who accept that confession and make it the central part of their lives. Romans 9 and 10, 10, 9 and 10. He goes on to say, Paul recognized, therefore, that some people will voluntarily accept the reality that Jesus is Lord and participate in his reign of glory. It's a common, beloved. Others will deny that lordship. 
but I don't have to listen to him. He's not the boss of me. Oh, indeed he is. Indeed he is. He's just a good man, you know, maybe you can learn some stuff from him. Oh, no. He was a good man, a perfect one. But he was way more than that. He's Lord. Others will deny that lordship, and in the end, the writer says, be conquered by the Lord himself. For them, it will be too late to participate in the glory. And they will be destined to the punishment appropriate for those who resist the Lord. He closes out 2.11, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And simply stated, this recognition of Christ's Lordship fulfills the purpose of the Father and so brings glory to Him and to the Godhead. Beloved, just quickly, as we think about this and just what is it, uh, obviously it's, let me just say this, to the unsaved, to those who have not willfully, joyfully, humbly bowed to him as he is and confessed that he indeed is Lord. and found in him their salvation, and then begin to follow him as Lord, because that's who he is, the supreme being to whom all allegiance, obedience, and worship is due by every human being. Well, if you're here, and that's you, and you know, or I hope you will know, that the Spirit will break through maybe the lies you're telling yourself. I pray that you will not wait until you are made to bow and confess. You'll bow. But if you wait until you're made to bow, then you will not share in the glory of the King. You will only know His judgment. You will only know his wrath when he crushes his enemies. You don't have to be his enemy, but if you will not bow, you are his enemy. And for Christians, this should have an impact on our lives. That's why I don't love that, that phrase in the back of that big rig truck, although I think it's well-intentioned. His name is not the man upstairs. His name is Jesus. Lord, Lord, that has implications for you and me. I don't, I'm not a follower of Jesus, beloved, you know, that nice guy that really saw, you know the one, my Savior, the one who died for me? I'm not a follower of Jesus, per se. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus, which he didn't, so he died for me, and I'm grateful, and I'm moved beyond words because of his death for me and what he did. But he, he's not just Savior. He has been exalted to the... He's not, 
just the one who died. He has been exalted to the highest place. He has been given the name above every name, and that name has meaning. It's loaded with meaning. He's the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the one who has been given all judgment. All will stand before Him, and all will bow before Him. And now, as the one who has saved me, He is also my Lord. I follow not Jesus, I follow the Lord Jesus, which means my whole life is to be surrendered to Him. It's not just He surrendered His life for me, thank you, but that I am now called upon by this one, by his name, to surrender all of me to him. To daily bow and keep confessing. Since we seem to forget so easily that this one is Lord. I'll close with this. One writer says, as we consider the implications for ourselves of this passage, as those who are believing and who have placed their faith and are believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and trusting for him for salvation and following after him as Lord, he says this, his exaltation has been long since achieved and remains true today. Among the millions who do not know this, we do know it. Which means we shouldn't live as if we don't know it. Jesus is Lord and King. According to the passage before us, there is a proper response to such a reigning Lord. For on the day when it, He is manifested in all His glory, <laughs> I can't wait, there will be something about that glory which will provoke Unbidden by anything save the glory itself, the bending of the knee in submission, and the loosing of the tongue in confession. It is by our homage gladly rendered and our spoken declaration of his name and nature that we, in our present situation, give evidence to all that he reigns. And that we are his people. We need to live in the reality of who he is. So that others will know that he indeed is not my buddy. Not my co-pilot. Not someone I check in on once in a while. Not my genie in a bottle. But that he is indeed Lord, Father in heaven, do this work in us for your glory, for the glory of the Godhead, and for our witness to this lost world. In Christ's name, amen.